Father in heaven, we thank you that we could be here today, and uh, we pray that your blessings on our study and ask that you would help us to, uh, to finish Revelation today, and uh, that you would lead us and guide us in this conversation, and that, uh, that you would strengthen our faith and our, our courage through this, uh, this book, uh, this strange book, but uh, a book that, uh, that speaks of the victory of Christ and the victory that he gives us, and we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, so we are on chapter 19, verse 11. So 19, verse 11 uh, through 21. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth came a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice, he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, come gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings and flesh of captains and the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders and the flesh of all men both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who sits on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Gospel of the Lord. Uh, Powerful image uh, of the end. And uh, um, this really flows from everything else that we've been reading. Um, This is is spiritual warfare. This is the battle at the end. And... uh, this rider with the white horse uh, shows up, and um, you know, it, we know who it is. It's, it's Jesus. You know, and you know, it, it talks about the, the multiple diadems on his head. You know, that points to the end of where it identifies him as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. You know, if you're wearing more than one crown, you know, you're King of Queen of more than one place. That's kind of the idea. And uh, um, he's there, and he shows up, and, and just this incredible image. And it contrasts against his, uh, his first coming, his earthly ministry. You know, when Jesus was incarnate, not a lot of fanfare. You know, you got the angel shows up and, and speaks to Mary by herself. You know, and the Son of God becomes a holy embryo. And, uh, you know, it's very quiet. You know, even Jesus' birth is very humble that first coming, it, 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 it's, it's, it's very quiet, but this coming is not. All this glory and power is shown. And 
you know, there's this, there's this idea that, you know, the first time Jesus came, it was for peace, and this second time he comes, he comes for war. But really, he comes both times for war, but he comes for war to bring peace. The first time he came, the incarnation, it's kind of like a beachhead. Where he breaks the power of the uh, of the devil holding the world, and and he brings the gospel, the kingdom of God has come, and, and all of that kind of stuff. And the second coming is his final victory, where all of those powers that he has tolerated, that he is actually over, but he has tolerated, uh, are defeated and swept away. Now, some of the images that are in here that kind of struck me, you know, it talks about he has this, uh, he, he's wearing this robe, and it's it's dipped in blood. And uh, that's kind of an awful image. But have we run into that image before? Yeah, back in chapter 7, um, you know, John sees this vision of heaven. He sees the saints around the throne, and, and he asks, who are these people? You know, the angel asks him, who are these people? And he replies, sir, you know, these are those who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. You know, and this is saying that Jesus' power and his authority flows from him giving his blood to redeem humanity. And he's got this sharp sword and this rod of iron. The sharp sword's coming out of his mouth. And it's just this really bizarre image. And, you know, and it's showing his power and authority to, to judge. But not just to judge, but to execute the sentence. You know, in, in our legal system, you know, the police, they arrest then the person goes before the judge. The judge and the jury, they convict. And then somebody else throw, you know, executes the, the, the punishment, whether it's taking the person to prison or you know, whatever else. Jesus is the one that has the authority to do the whole thing uh, from beginning to end. And I think there's something else that's fascinating. Uh, when you read about this, uh, this, this final battle that's going on here, you know, Jesus is the one that has this rod of iron. He's got this sword. And it says that the armies of heaven come behind him. And did you, did you hear what they're wearing? This is verse 14. Fine linen. Fine linen. That's what you want for a battle. Exactly. Full armor of God. Yeah. <laughs> but I think that there is a bit of that to this. I mean, it's this pure white linen that they're wearing. And the imagery, there, there's, there's another group of people in the Bible that wear this fine linen, and it's Jesus' priests, or God's priests in the Old Testament. They're always dressed in this, this fine linen, and uh, you know, the images that those who come behind, they're not there to, to win the battle. Jesus wins the battle. They're like an honor guard. They're not in danger at all because Jesus is there. Yeah, except that you know, the pale horse, it, it um, you know, we, sort of faded, I guess. It, yeah, the, the Greek is actually, it's kind of green. Green, okay. That's yeah, what we mentioned that. Kind of, kind of sickly looking is, is what it means. That's like when a person goes pale. Ex exactly, and they get kind of that greenish tint when they're really sick. That, but, yeah. Yeah. yeah, but, but that's, that's the imagery there. Okay. <clears throat> yeah, and, uh, and, and then you have this, 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 this battle which it doesn't describe the battle at all, other than a lot of dead 
You know, and it's just really just showing the, uh, the overwhelming defeat. And uh, <laughs> this grotesque image of, of the birds, it, it takes us right back to, you know, ancient warfare. You know, I don't know that we, um, well, we Americans are so um, protected from this kind of violence. You know, I mean, we, our soldiers are, they're, they're paid and the, the battles, they take place elsewhere. You know, it, you know and, and so, you know, we live in this, this incredible peace um, on the whole. Um, but uh, the, uh, the battles of, of, of that time, I mean, boy, I, Luther used to complain from time to time about how the gun changed warfare. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, before you had to look the person in the eye. And I think that there's something about that, you know, that, you know, boy, you know, you look in another human being's eyes, you know, if you're a good person who, you know, the reason that you're there is to protect your country or, you know, whatever else, that, that is a terrible, terrible thing to have to do. Um, and I'm not saying that there aren't sick people who don't enjoy that because obviously there are, we read about them and see about them in the news, but, um, this was very personal. It was very up close, uh, very bloody, and uh, there was often very little done to clean up the battle. You know, whether you had people who would come and, you know, if the victory army, they would take their people, but the army that was defeated, a lot of times they were just left there. Oh, uh-huh. They could see out, presumably. You couldn't really see their faces. So mm-hmm. if you killed one, here was another one that looked exactly the same. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And this was, this was, you know, part of the mystique of this. Well, this is why the army, um, they, they cut your hair really yeah. short. You wear the exact same clothes. Yeah. You know, it's really hard to tell one from the other yeah. because there is a little bit of a dehumanizing that's done there. And it's also done for intimidation. I mean, think about seeing that person coming with the helmet and the goggles and, you know, the riot police that you see sometimes in the news. Mm-hmm. They are dressed that, that, that the whole idea is intimidation. And uh, when I was preparing for the sermon on the whole armor of God, it was describing the, uh, the armor that, uh, that the Romans wore. They often had these big plumes of feathers mm-hmm. and it made them look taller. You know, it's, it's all intimidation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Carolyn. And back then, it was very personal. Very. Because you were right there, and you could see them. Yeah. And no, you couldn't go and hide, and so it was slash at any living thing you saw. And so they didn't just kill the soldiers; they killed everybody, man, woman, and child, and they stomped those babies too. Yeah. Now it's easy to go to war because it's so impersonal. You push a button, and you're killing somebody yeah. two hundred miles away. Yeah, I, I find myself very, uh, um, uh, well, I'm only going to comment on this. I can't get into this. We don't have time. But I do think that this is worth a thought. Uh, drone warfare, it, it, I think that's very unsettling. Very unsettling. Okay. And then this, um, it, it talks about the, uh, the beast and the prophet and the lake of fire. Um, these are two of the personalities of the unholy trinity. Um, they're thrown into this lake of fire, and th- this, is, this is their destruction. This, it's their final punishment. Before they were allowed to kind of roam with a lot of freedom, now they're done. 
this is, this is where they're going to suffer. But it's only two out of the three. We have to find out what happens uh, with the third. And so that finishes up chapter 19. Now we're into chapter 20. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he sees the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God and those who had not worshiped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads and hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed, is the, blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. So uh, let's dive into this, uh, this thousand years things first. Um, I remember as a kid having conversations with people and they would ask, you know, so do you think that this is the millennium, that we are in the millennium? And, uh, you know, so it, when we talk about the millennium, the millennium is a thousand years. And some people believe that Jesus comes before the millennium and then you have a thousand years of peace. And, uh, and then, you know, you have Armageddon and Jesus, you know, then wraps it all up and, you know, we all go to heaven. Um, other believe that... Uh, you know, there's a, this post-tribulation millennialism that you have this thousand years and then the tribulation comes after that and then, uh, you know, Jesus comes and sets it all straight and we go to heaven. There's, when I was growing up, those were the two positions that were always pitted against each other. Pre-trib, post-trib. Um, tribulation, I should be clear. It's not, you know, triv, like trivisano, tribulation. Um, when I was at the seminary, I heard that there's a, I learned there's a third option. That's amillennialism. That there is no millennium, you know, thousand year period. Because this is all symbolic, remember? This is all kind of this, you know, looking at everything that's going on. A thousand years is, it's a long time, but it's one of these multiples of 10, so it's enough time. That's the idea. It's whatever time God designs. It's going to be enough time, but it's going to be a long time. Yeah. See, I figured it all out. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, seriously, I mean, people get themselves worked up with this, and they're like, so are we in it? Is it still coming? Is it pre? Is it post? No, it's now. This is all going on over and over again. And in the end, there's all this stuff that takes place with the, the binding of the, uh, the beast and of the prophet and, and, and of the dragon and all of that stuff taking place. But this thousand-year reign, I, I, you know, I actually think that that's, we're living in that. It's the time of the church. The time where um, this dragon is, is bound and that thrown into this abyss. And, and this abyss has been mentioned before. You know, it seems to be kind of like this temporary holding cell. 
and he's chained there. And it's not the only place that the abyss gets mentioned. You might recall that when Jesus confronts the, uh, the demoniac in, in the, uh, the ocean or along the Sea of Galilee and uh, with the, uh, the, the pigs, you know, you know, what's your name? We are legion for there are many of us. Do not cast us back into the abyss. So it, it seems to be kind of like this, this temporary holding cell, but there's a little bit of in and out that goes on there, except for perhaps for the dragon. Maybe it's just his minions that are coming in and out. Uh, you know, I, I don't want to put too much into this. Yeah. Yeah, Bill. Would you like to tackle why? Yeah, I will. In just a second here. Because um, I've got it on here. <clears throat> so um, when will this happen? When, when did this happen that the, uh, that the dragon was, uh, was bound? Um, there are a couple of thoughts. There's, uh, um, you, we could t- speak of it in terms of when Jesus came. Uh, Jesus talks about coming to bind the strong man. You know, um, there's another point where Jesus uh, sends out the 72 and they come back and he says, I saw Satan fall like lightning. It could be then. Um, I, I don't think that we can put too fine a point on it other than at some point it happened. You know, that, you know, he, he had a lot of free reign. You might remember when you read Job, that the devil comes into God's presence in order to accuse Job. That's what Satan means, by the way. He's the accuser. That's what he, he does. You know, that word devil. When somebody bedevils somebody, they, they kind of torment them, right? That, that's kind of the idea of, of, a, of a devil. He torments our consciences and torments us to, you know, make us think that Jesus hasn't saved us, you know, that we're that bad. And, and, and so, um, you know, it's hard to say when it happened. The, the ordering of this stuff seems a bit tricky because it sounds like if this is currently the dinner, <coughs> then the Antichrist has already come and gone and we've gotten that out of the way. I don't want to say he's come and gone. I want to say that he is here and he is present. Okay, no, I thought he was cast into the pit along with the dragon. Rem- remember, what we've got going on in Revelation is, is, is kind of the cyclical view of things and so you're constantly coming back and and seeing it from a different angle okay you know we're we're used to kind of thinking more linearly yeah you know and uh um you know and i think that gets us into a little bit of trouble with this because i i jewish writing tends to be this kind of cyclical sometimes there's motion to it you know you know it's taking you through other times it's He's just sitting right here going round and round the same thing. You know, and I think we have a little bit of both of those things happening in this. And, and so it makes it a little bit, what exactly is going on here? So, now, why? Why must the dragon be released? I don't know. <laughs> I told you I'd answer. I didn't say you would like the answer. This is something in God's wisdom. I, I, I don't understand it. Um, I have a couple of thoughts, but they, they could be as wrong as anything or more wrong than anything, I suppose. Um, and uh, I, I think the part about him being bound makes sense. You know, that, that God, Jesus, would bind the devil so that, you know, his people could do his work on earth and share the gospel. You know, it, that he would limit that power. Um, 
but why let him free? And the, the main thought that comes to my mind on that is for him to be completely exposed for what he is so that in the judgment, everyone sees and everyone knows. You know, and, and then it just becomes more and more stark you know, what the difference is between God's kingdom and you know, the, the work of devil in the world. Um, I don't think so. I'm not, notice I said I don't think so. I'm not saying no. We humans get that opportunity. Right, but we are humans, yeah. and the angels are not. And, um, you know, and, and we get into a little bit of a, you know, a little bit of difficulty here because, you know, the Bible really doesn't, doesn't say a lot about angels. It knows, we know that they exist. We know that they're active, that they're at work in the world. We know that some are evil. We call them demons. And, you know, and then others are holy. We just call them angels. And, uh, you know, and they're at work. The name angel itself just means messenger. And uh, we know that they have great power um, you know, that, to, to serve God. But in terms of um, you know, you know, the repentance part, I don't see that in the scriptures, uh, and that's the only thing I've got to work with. That's why I say I, I don't think so. And plus, I mean, it, it talks about what's going to happen, is that even if he did have the opportunity to repent, he's not going to. He's going to end up tossed into the lake of fire. Carolyn, you have something? Yeah, sometimes what God says is, I'm God and you're not. Yeah. And sometimes he says, I know, and I'm not telling. Yeah. Uh, it's enough. I thinks with some of this stuff, if you tried to explain it to us, and we really tried to understand it, our brains would explode. <laughs> We're not capable of understanding. So God says, look, I'm God. I'm in charge. I know what's going on. You don't need to just believe what I tell you. Yeah, I, I, I think that there might be some truth in that, yeah. He's working salvation through all of this. And what yeah. I don't understand is you say you can't explain. If he has him bound and he has him restricted, why would he release him again to do the harm? Yeah, they're, they're, I think that they're, the biggest mystery in my mind in the whole history of, of, of the world is that the Son of God comes to rescue sinners. He becomes human. And how does he do it? He dies on a cross. He dies badly. I, I just, I, I, I think about that. And, and when I was younger, it was just, you know, yeah, Jesus came, he died. But then when I think about that in terms of a plan of salvation, I'm like, that doesn't make any sense at all. Well, it does when, when, when the pronouncement of God in the Garden of Eden was all humans, you've got to die, all right? Yes. And in order to take that away from us, then Jesus yeah, no, I. Yeah, that, that whole humanity boiled down to one person. I get it. But in terms of a plan of salvation, you know, I'm thinking, you know, conquering might. I'm thinking crushing power. I'm thinking, you know, I'm thinking of like, you know, the, the, the freeing of the, the concentration camps. You know, the, the, the victims in there, the Jews, they're suffering and they're dying. And, and here comes the Americans and everybody rejoices because they're going to, you know, kick the Nazis' butts and they're going to win and they're going to be set free. 
The bad guys die, not the good guys. Jesus comes as the good guy to stand with the bad guys and die to save them. I, I, I find that absolutely amazing. Mm-hmm. Amazing. Well, that is just, as I say, I maybe focus too much on the humanity of Christ in that, uh, if you know, that he had to be that. He had oh, yeah. to be human. Yeah. He had to be subjected to the same problems that I had. Absolutely. And so on and so forth. Yep. And not fail. Be yep. able to pull through that. Yeah. And so on. And otherwise, it's easier to accept someone that's a little like you. Sure. But, you know, but he's still God. And that God would become human? That he would lower himself like that? This, this is pretty amazing stuff when you think about it. And uh, pretty gobsmacking. You know, that we would be like, you know, you know what gobsmack means, don't you? This is your gob? You know, so it's just, Wow. You know, and that actually takes me back to Job. Um, you know, at the end of Job, um, Job has this whole thing where he's like, why is this happening? God, give me an answer. And God comes and he talks, you know, he asks, he asks Job questions. Where do I keep the snow? You know, where, you know, where are the foundations? All of these things. And, and Job's final response is, I put my hand over my mouth. Which roughly translated as, I'm going to shut up now. <laughs> Because I just I've been completely overwhelmed by God, and and that's what I find in, in some of this is just that God is overwhelming in all of this, and we just sit in awe and amazement, and then faith receives what He gives. And we couldn't understand it if He came down and explained it. Well, I do think that eventually we will. But then we're not going to be like this. Right. Well, we will still be. We'll still have bodies and all of those but things, I mean, but they'll be glorified. Still sinful. And Right. The sinfulness is like a veil that mm-hmm. keeps us from being able to see. Mm-hmm. So that right now he could come down here and stand where you are and explain it in it. No. <laughs> or last yeah. Yes. Yeah. Maybe it started in Genesis. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I know that, but I meant with, you know, the serpent, mm-hmm. Satan, mm-hmm. entering the serpent. And God felt like we needed to have a chance because they... I don't think Adam and Eve knew he was even around and who he was. No, they time. walked with him in the garden. They, they, oh, right. you're talking about Satan? Yeah, I mean, so God is giving humans a chance. I don't know that he gives a chance. He gives salvation. By sal- with salvation, yeah. that's what I meant. Yeah, no, I think he steps right into that situation and, and, uh, and is basically saying, I- I'm going to save you from this. You're going to have to trust me, and you're going to have to wait. Right, that's what I mean. Yeah. I'm not explaining it right. Okay. But I'm just Again, saying it started with that. Yeah. Again, it's it's like Job, where Satan and God are, you know, how good is Job and why and everything. And, and then at the end, when God is talking to Job, he never does no, he never. explain it. Nope. He doesn't tell him one single thing. Yeah. He basically says, I'm God, I made it all, I know what's going on. Yep. And... He doesn't explain himself very much. And I think it's because we couldn't understand it if he did. Yeah. He didn't explain himself with Adam and Eve either. Nope. He just said, I want you to obey me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and, and, and there, there are times where I think that's 
I mean, well, when God does it, obviously it's appropriate. But uh, you know, but I, you ever do that with your kids? You know, yeah. this is the way I want it. And I just want it I want that's it. what I said. Because yeah. I said so. Yeah, yes. yeah, and I do think that you know there comes times where it's right to say you know this is why I want it the way because that, that's part of teaching your kids and raising right. them and all of those things. But sometimes it's just this is what I want and that's enough. You know, mm-hmm. and please trust that. I've got some experience and wisdom here. I see the bigger picture. You know, and, and that's what I, I think that there's an element of that in this too. Yeah, I think, I think there's more to God than just the, the, the breadth of experience and wisdom. I think it's a, a mm-hmm. more qualitative difference. Oh, absolutely. And I think when we look in Genesis where he says he made God and made man in his own image, we get carried away with that a little too much. Yeah. And when it says he set him just below the angels, we have to take that as a statement, I think, of how low the angels are mm-hmm. rather than how high we are. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. All right. So it goes into and it talks about these thrones in heaven and, and this judgment and, and then, um, you know, the, uh, the, uh, the, the dragon being thrown in. No, we didn't get to that part yet. Um, but uh, the, the, this, this is simultaneous. The things that are happening here. So we're seeing kind of what's happening in, in heaven uh, with the uh, the dragon in terms of the uh, the thousand years, and then it's shifting to the the same thing, but it's a view from a heavenly point of view, and uh, and it talks about this first resurrection and the second death, and this this is so hugely important because I remember reading this, meaning just what in the world is going on here. The first resurrection. It's your baptism. It's coming to faith. You were dead in trespasses and sins. Now you are alive in Christ. If you were buried with Christ in baptism, you were buried that you might receive a resurrection like his. It's that death to life thing. That's the first resurrection that you have. And that first resurrection is what saves you from the second death. You know, so that when we die, it's not that we die. You know, we continue to live in God's presence. You know, these bodies die and we wait for the resurrection to receive new bodies, but we are not dead. We continue to live. And, and then Jesus comes again and he judges everyone and we live in glory with him. That's what this is talking about. You know, so it's not some kind of mysterious, uh, I've got to figure this out so I can get this first resurrection thing. You have it. It's already yours. God has worked that in you to bring you a new life. I mean, that new life theme, it's all through the, the New Testament, isn't it? I mean, this isn't the first time we're talking about that in terms of reading the Bible. And, and, and that's what he's saying is that those who have that new life, they're blessed. And they're going to be protected from this, this second death, which is the, the eternal judgment. We're still going to die, right? I mean, I'm going to, unless Jesus comes back first. Not a lot of choice there. Yeah. But because I've been raised in my baptism, I don't need to fear any of those deaths subsequently. moving really quick. I, I apologize for that, but I'm hoping that we can get through this here. 
And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they were they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Um, you know, I remember when I was a kid, you know, this whole Gog and Magog thing, you know, they're like, is this Russia? Is this China? You know, no, it's symbolic. You know, in Ezekiel, um, they talk, uh, Ezekiel talks about these two nations, Gog and Magog. And I'm not sure that we have any evidence that these two places ever existed. They're, 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 they're intended to be symbolic of God's enemies. You know, and so the symbolism is that you know, all of God's enemies come together. This is, this is the spiritual warfare that takes place at the end. This is another telling of Armageddon. And, uh, and they come together, and all of you know, it, I, the imagery is incredible. You've got God's people together, the holy city, and, and they're gathered together, and they're completely surrounded by God's enemies. They're ready for battle. They're coming to destroy God's people. They're coming to destroy the church. And what does the church do to defend itself? Yeah, nothing. They just trusted. Yeah, and, and, and so it talks about, it says that fire came down from heaven, you know, and it, it devoured all of these enemies. It's divine judgment that comes upon them. Now, there are places in the Old Testament where similar things took place. Um, the, the Assyrians came and they surrounded um, Jerusalem. And, uh, you know, they, they were threatening Jerusalem. They were going to take the people captive. And, uh, and, and God acted on their behalf. And um, they woke up the next morning and pretty much the whole Assyrian army that was surrounded was dead. God took care of it. And then there's another time where Elijah was uh, sitting on a mountaintop and uh, um, King Ahaz, a wicked king, had sent uh, some people to arrest him, uh, to bring him to him. And uh, four different times, these troops come to, or I shouldn't say these troops, troops come to um, Elijah in order to take him. And each time, God rains fire down on them, kills them. Another group comes, kills them. Another group comes, kills them. Fourth group comes, and they're like, hey, uh, you know, I, I'm just here because he said to come. And if you, you know, please, maybe, you know, and Elijah comes with them. But the imagery is Old Testament imagery of how God protects his people. And he just utterly annihilates uh, his enemies here. It says, uh, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. And from his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. The, the, the image of God here is so overwhelming that creation itself cannot you know, just you know, be content in, its, in his presence. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, 
and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. So you've got these sets of books, and one of them is like the record of people's lives, and the other is the book of life, where the, the, the names of God's people are written. Uh, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead that were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown in the lake of fire. So notice, everyone's judged by their deeds. But what gets you into heaven? What gets you not tossed into the lake of fire? Your name's written in the book of life. Your deeds matter. The things that we do matter. You know, as Lutherans, I think sometimes we're very cautious about this because we don't want people to think that their deeds save them. Rightly so. Saved by grace through faith. But that doesn't mean that deeds don't matter. And it doesn't mean that the things that we do in this life won't be judged. You know, our hope for salvation is what Jesus has done. But we will stand before God. And uh, the image here is that there will be a thorough going over of our lives. Yeah, and I think Carolyn's response there is, you know, yeah. <laughs> it's, not, it's not a great moment. Especially when he's not just going to look at your deeds. He's going to look at what was going on in your head. In your head yeah, and in your heart and all of those things. Yeah. And then it's, but your name is in the book of life and your sins are taken away and you're welcomed into the everlasting life because of God's grace and the faith that received that grace. And, and so that's the judgment. Yeah? I heard a takeoff on an evangelist one time, Peter, radio evangelist, and his idea was that God had your whole life on, on videotape. Oh, great. And that he was going to sell you an edit. <laughs> nice. You can take out the bad parts. <laughs> <laughs> For a contribution of $1,000. <laughs> All right. And now things become a lot more beautiful. Can I ask one question? Yeah. I always was curious when I read Revelation. When they say the sea gave up, and then they have, yeah. there's death and there's Hades, they yeah. gave up. Yep. What is the sea? Is that the oceans that we have on Earth right now? Or is, what is it? Is that symbolic? Um, I know death is not going to be around anymore. I think in a sense it is symbolic. It's symbolic in the sense that, you know, when, when people are buried at sea, there's nothing left. You know, I mean, yeah, if that, you know, because over time even the, 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 the calcium in the bones gets, uh, you know, can, can be uh, absorbed into the sea. And uh, it, it's just, you know, there's no more... There are very few things that more thoroughly destroy us than, than you know, the sea. And it's saying that it doesn't matter where you died, doesn't matter how you died, doesn't matter the state of your body, you know, we all come back to life to stand, you know, before the Lord. It, it could be, I mean, it could include the earth. The yeah, absolutely. The earth. Absolutely. It's, it's that whole experience of, of 
you know, of death and the body being completely destroyed. And that does not keep God from raising them from the dead. Because the earth came out of the sea when it was initially created. I I think... God sees it as part of the sea or whatever. No, I I think he just... I think that this is just an extreme example. You know, the other stuff's easy. This is the big one. I want to ask a question. Yeah. Going back to the... um, uh, Looking at our whole life kind of thing. What about our, all of our sins that have been forgiven and washed away? Are they going to be present then sure. to observe? Or have they been washed away in just the ones that we haven't reconciled with or repented from? It says that our deeds, the yeah. things that we've done, are, are observed. They're, they're, they're noted. Re- regardless of the fact that we have yeah. asked for forgiveness for some of those deeds that we shouldn't have done. Yeah. The trick is that they're not held against you because your name is written in the book of life. That was one of the problems that Luther had was he was trying to, you know, what if I forget something? What yeah. if I committed a sin and I don't repent of it? You know, what, what happens to me then? Uh, so there were unrepented sins out there that, right. well, you know, for whatever reason, but those were all forgiven with Christ's death. Those were all washed away. It, it's, it's, it's basically like a moment of confession. Yes, I did that. And Jesus paid for it. And just because we forget about it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Right. And just right. because you remember it doesn't mean it condemns you. Yeah. The Catholic Church for centuries, I don't know if they still do, but for centuries they said if you didn't have a body to be buried in the ground, then you were not going to go to heaven. And it seems yeah. like this says, no, that's not true. That is, you are correct. Um, and I don't believe they teach that anymore. Oh, yeah, you'd be buried in hallowed ground. Yes. Yeah. Yes, yep. all kinds of rules about you have to have the body buried and it has to be buried in a certain way in a certain place. But this pretty much says it doesn't matter. You die right. and you're... Right. It doesn't matter. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Ellen. Don't laugh at me, but this doesn't sound silly. Do you think that's how they got the, the from the Bible of Santa Claus, the good list of kids, the bad list of kids? That could be. Call? It could be. But I think that that's something that we do pretty naturally where we start trying to make distinctions, good and bad. You know, I think that that's something that is kind of written in the human heart, that we're always trying to make distinctions between people, and we always want to be a little bit better than somebody else. Mm-hmm. All right, chapter 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. The sea, remember, is a symbol of the, the chaos and the, uh, and the enemies of God in the world. You know, and, and that's why there's no sea doesn't mean there won't be any water, though, because we're going to hear that there's going to be a river. It's another thing about seas is, um, you know, like when you think about the Dead Sea, you know, it, it, they just kind of receive what comes into them and they become, you know, well, dead. Um, then I saw the new heaven, new earth, and then no sea. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things has passed away. Beautiful images. Mm -hmm. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. 
The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. And as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, for, as for murderers, and the sexually immoral, sorcerers, which um, that word's pharmakia, where we get our word pharmacy. I just mentioned that just because there's a pharmacist in the room. Um, <laughs> idolaters and all liars, uh, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Um, the, uh, the new Jerusalem, this, this imagery comes right out of Exodus where God dwells with the people of Israel. You know, and you've got the tabernacle there and the, the people dwell all the way around it. And this, this imagery is important through the rest of the book because the tribes of Israel were stationed around it on the different sides. You had three different uh, on, on each side. And um, you know, to the thirsty, he's going to give living water. There's somebody who talked about that. Let's see who was that. That's Jesus, you know, and and it's basically that you know I, I'm I'm giving this new life to everybody who believes, and then at the end we've got this stark warning against persisting in evil. You know, and uh, you know, I know sometimes we kind of chafe at this, but really the idea is that you know this is a person's way of life. It's not that they have murdered somebody. It's not that they have done something detestable. Um, the, the key word there is they're idolaters. Because when you get down to it, when we live in sin and we continue to return to it, it's, it's idolatry and it's having another God in our lives. And, and that's with the heart of the matter here. And, you know, so we're going to come to God with another idol and say, you know, hey, yeah, let me in. You know, look, how I've trusted in this thing my whole life. No, you know, he wants us to trust in, in him and to have no other gods before him. And then it continues and it, it, it talks about one of the seven angels who had one of the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues. You come, I will show you the bride the wife of the lamb, and he carried me away. You know, so you're expecting to see like a, a beautiful woman, or you know, and he carried me away to the in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem. He shows him the church is what he's showing him, coming down out of heaven from God, and this again is that imagery of the tabernacle. The tabernacle is kind of a, an earthly representation of heaven. That's why all the measurements had to be perfect. And uh, I'm going to just skip over some of this stuff just to talk about some of what's going on here. You've got these gates in the, uh, around it, and they've got the names of the, uh, the tribes of Israel on them. And everything is glorious. Everything is just beautiful. Uh, I've, I've got to read some of this. Having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. Had a great high wall with 12 gates and the 12... And at the gates, 12 angels. And on the gates, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east three, north three, south three, west three, all tabernacle image, images. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations. And on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And so, you know, it's just this, this whole picture of all of God's people, whether it's Old Testament or New Testament, and the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the, because gold apparently is more accurate. I, you know, that's a joke. Um, it, it's, I mean, the place is so fancy, you don't, you don't measure it with anything other than the most expensive measuring tape, apparently. Um, to measure the gates and the walls, and the city lies four square. 
its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with its rod, and, and it's huge. It's huge. Um, each side is about uh, 1,300 miles, 1,400 miles. You know, and so the, the picture of this is this great, ginormous city, and it's a, gem, a, a geometrically perfect cube. You know, and, and that's all just images of perfection, that, that God comes and, and everything is glorious and beautiful and perfect in, in every way. And, and the wall is 144 cubits by human measurement. That's, that's how, how thick, which is also an angel's measurement, by the way, it says. Um, 144, um, is that number significant? 12 by 12, right? Yeah, um, so we've got uh, 12 gates and we've got, uh, we've got 12 foundations. Uh, we've got 1,200 stadia in terms of the length. Uh, we've got 144 cubits. Uh, a cubit, by the way, is from the tip of your finger to your elbow. So roughly 18 inches. Um, and uh, <clears throat> depending on how tall you are. Um, but uh, the... Uh, all of this is just these twelves these and, and just always returning to this, you know, God's chosen people. You know, in Old Testament, he had 12 tribes. New Testament, 12 apostles. You know, just over and over again. And he builds this place with some really fancy, really expensive building materials. You know, the wall was built of jasper. The city was pure gold, clear as glass. It's so highly polished, it, you know, just... The foundation of the walls of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel, uh, jasper, sapphire, agate, emerald, onyx, carnelian, uh, chrysolite, uh, beryl, topaz, chrysoprase, jacinth, amethyst, all of these just incredible, incredible jewels. And the 12 gates were 12 pearls, each of the, which had to have been pretty darn big to be uh, gates. Uh, and each of the gates was made of a single pearl, and the, uh, the, the street of the city was pure gold, transparent as glass. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, we use asphalt in heaven. <laughs> in heaven, the, you know, that, that's, the, that's the value of gold. You walk on it. You know, just think about how many times people have been willing to, to die for gold, for money. And in heaven, it's just like, yeah, it's pavement. You must put quite an oyster to make that pearl. One heck of an oyster, yeah. <laughs> and it's all to emphasize the glory of God and the glory of the place. Yeah. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. You don't need a temple, because the temple is where God is present. Well, God is just present. <coughs> and the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. You know, he, he's there, and he, but, you know, the, his, his glory lights the way. The Old Testament glory is always connected to light. Um, by its light, all the nations will walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring it into it the glory and the honor of the nations. This is all Old Testament prophecy that's coming to fulfillment, that the nations come and they experience this, this wondrous salvation. And uh, it says, Nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So these gates are never shut. Why? There's no enemy anymore. God has seen to that. It's all, all, 
all is in his power and it's all salvation and, and the enemies are tossed into the, the lake of fire and, and, and it's perfect safety and perfect peace and all of these things. And there's no more sin when you're there. You know, that's what it means when there's not, nothing unclean. It's, it's all gone. And the vision continues. He says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life. In heaven, water is always some kind of living water. It's always moving. It's a spring that bubbles up. It's a, it's a river that's always flowing. The river of the water of life, bright as crystal. You know, we have friend. We, did our, um, we lived a year in Kansas, uh, Leavenworth, Kansas, just outside of Kansas City. And... Uh, we spent a lot of time looking at the Missouri River and uh, lived in St. Louis at the Mississippi River. And uh, I grew up in Michigan, and I'm used to, like, Lake Michigan, which is just clear. I'm not saying clean. I said clear. Um, and, uh, um, you know, when you're out west, the rivers are, are dark and they're muddy looking. And, I mean, the muddy Mississippi, right? That's, that's what they call it. And uh, we had friends who came and visited us, and we took them to Windsor, Ontario, you know, because just across the river from uh, Detroit. And, uh, and so the rivers that they had seen, the water that they had seen was all this Kansas water. You know, they had seen the Missouri River flowing, and they saw the, the Detroit River flowing, and they are like, oh, my goodness, I'd never known water could be that clean. And I went, <laughs> clean? That water's as polluted as it comes. But it looks fantastic compared to uh, the sluggish Missouri or the, the, the muddy Mississippi. And, uh, you know, and, and the image here you know, is this, just this beautiful, clean, clear water flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb you know, through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. Um, so this, this huge tree is growing. It's on, on both sides of the river. And uh, think back to, uh, to Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve ate of the knowledge of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? And they're ejected so that they don't eat of the tree of life. And now it's right there in the city and it's accessible to everyone. It's a return to Genesis it's a return to paradise. Everything is peace and perfect and, and, and God's presence and, 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 and that, that direct access to him. And it says that, you know, that, that the fruit gives the, the tree gives these 12 kinds of fruit and, and just, it's just yielding all year long. You know, that just this incredible life. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Just all kinds of images of, of peace and health and wholeness and, and all of these things. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face. Remember when Isaiah went into the temple and saw God sitting on the throne? You know, he's like, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips, and you know, I'm, I'm ruined. I'm dead is basically you know, another way to translate that woe is me. And he's, you know, no, we're going to see God face to face. His name will be on their foreheads. I baptize you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And night will be no more. They will need no light of the lamp or sun, or the, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. You know, it's this total restoration of paradise. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, 
has sent his angel to show the servants what must soon take place. It, it's it's going to happen. You know, all this stuff is just kind of swirling around, but the end is coming, and it's coming soon. You know, just remember, God defines soon differently than we do. In fact, you know, the next verse, Behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. This, Jesus talked like this all the time. He's like, be on guard. Be alert. The day comes when you don't expect it. Come like a thief in the night. It's going to happen any time. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I saw, when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel. He goofs up again because he's just so overwhelmed by all of this. Who showed them to me. And he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers and the prophets. And with those who keep the words of this book, worship God. And he said to me, oh, I, I forgot the thing about the Alpha and the Omega uh, from earlier on. This is called uh, Hendiadus. Alpha and Omega, it's A to Z in, in the Greek alphabet. He's not saying just that I am the beginning and the end or the first and the last. He is the first, the last, and everything in between. That's what Hendiadus does. It takes you know, the two parts and it says it's the whole, Okay. Uh, in fact, hendiadus is from the Greek, and it means one out of two. You know, it's the whole thing out of two images. And, uh, and he, there's this uh, next part. He says, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of the book, for the time is near. Let the evildoers still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do righteous, and the holy still be holy. Um, it, this, this passage kind of troubles me a little bit, and I have two thoughts about it. One is, you know, you can't change people. God can. Let God do his work. Don't get yourself in a twist, okay? Um, and then the second thought is, you know, God punishes sin with sinning. And uh, you know, we read about this in Romans chapter 1. And he rewards righteousness with righteousness. And it could be just an expression of that. That when people are, are just so determined that they're going to sin... God punishes that by giving them more sin. And that when we live in his righteousness, he gives us more and more of that righteousness. It could just be an expression of that. And again, just over and over, behold, I'm coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay everyone for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first, the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may, be, may have the right to the tree of life, that they may enter the city by the gates. This washing of robes in the Old Testament, it, it's the priests that are washing their robes. And it's the symbol that we are God's priests. We're the ones who are, are his servants and we're here to intercede for the world. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Catch that. Loves and practices. They're not turning away from their sin. They're not repenting. They're determined to live in it. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Um, in Greek, you do not have to use the words I and am to say I am. You can just use the, the, the verb, but he says it very specifically here. I am. It's a reference to the Old Testament name of God. He's claiming that title for himself. And he says that he is the root and the offspring of David because the prophecy is that David is going to have this king who lives forever. 
Uh, you know, and you know, how can you be the root and the offspring? It's because he's before and he is after, uh, and, and all of those things. He's the bright morning star. The Jews believed the Messiah would be announced with a star. I think there's something about that when Jesus was born at Christmas. Yeah. Um, you know, so we've, we've got all of that. And uh, the Spirit and the Bride, so the Holy Spirit who's at work in the world, and the Bride is the church, it's us, say, come. And let the one who hears, let each individual here say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. So there's this, this sense that we desire for Jesus to come because of all the, the things that he's going to bring to us, all the good that he's going to bring in, in making all things new and, and bringing salvation and, and all of that. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. That's a pretty stark warning. He's saying to trust his word. But if anyone takes away from the words of the prophecy of this book, God will take away his share in the tree of the life of the holy city, which are described in this book. Another stark, stark warning. And he testifies to these things, saying, Surely I am coming soon. And the church responds with, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord be with all. Amen. Now, a couple quick thoughts how we use Revelation. And I'm just going to run through this really quickly here. I think that we should listen to this book for comfort and encouragement to not give up because we know that the saints have been through hard times before. Jesus said, in this life you will have trouble. Take heart, I have overcome the world. So many times people are like, oh, I'm a Christian. Why should I have any problems? Because in this life you will have trouble. That's, did this describe trouble? Lots of it, yeah. Take heart, Jesus overcomes. Jesus wins. That's the final message of the book. Jesus wins. Do not use this book to predict the future. It won't work. Yeah, other than Jesus wins. And the other things that we use, uh, I, I, that final warning, hear it, believe it, but I think one of the most powerful ways that we use this book is in our worship. There's so much beautiful imagery in here. And it has found its way into a vast number of hymns, songs, choral pieces that are rooted in Revelation. I was hoping to play this song for you. But uh, go ahead and take these, uh, these lyrics and, and read this over. And I'm just going to tell this story and then we need to end. Um, this song is called Inso. And uh, Chris and I sang this when we were in, uh, in college in the choir. It was written by Paul Mons. He wrote it as his wife was dying. E'en so, Lord Jesus, quickly come, and night will be no more. They need no light, no lamp, no sun, for Christ will be their all. These are powerful words, powerful images, when we experience powerful pain in this world. And I think that that's how we use Revelation. To constantly remember that this is not everything. That no matter how hellish our existence is, God has promised something beautiful and wonderful that comes beyond it. So, 
I hope you uh, I hope you got some good stuff out of this uh, this uh, study. Uh, I don't know what uh, what Bob has in mind for you for next week, but I'm going to be back with the kiddos. Peter, like a study of Peter, or okay, cool. Yes, Ellen.